morning, brothers and sisters. This week we're continuing in our second week of study of Paul's epistle to Titus as he was a pastor to a variety of congregations on the island of Crete. Last week we began with the introduction to the introduction. We got through scarcely four verses today and the grace and power of the Holy Spirit will endeavor to continue looking at chapter one of Titus. This chapter is one that lays out for Titus information about what the church ought to look like and what the leaders of Christ's church ought to behave like. We mentioned last week that this letter wasn't a private letter to Titus. If it were, it certainly wouldn't be included in our canon, but it was directed to all of those who were in these fledgling churches along with Titus as well as unbelievers who had infiltrated the ranks of the church with false motives, as well as unbelievers from the world around that would have been in earshot of the reading of this letter. It's for that reason that it's given to us in Scripture, God's ordained word for us today. This is relevant for us today. This is relevant for our church As we we go through this text, we'll understand that what we see here is a blueprint, a time-proven formula from God himself for how the church ought to be structured. It's appropriate in the, the time of our church right now to recognize that while we are burdened for our brother John and we pray for his healing and his restoration, that what Pastor John has given to us as a body of believers is a faithful teaching of the same word that Paul gave to Titus. And that is to set up a church that is not without a pastor. It is not without a shepherd. See, we have our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And under that, we have plurality of men who are called to look out for the sheep. And so as we examine that this morning, this is very timely. We'll also see some things about biblical eldership, and you might be, tune, you might be tempted to tune out and think, this isn't relevant for me. I'm not even a man. I could never be a biblical elder. But this is absolutely imperative for us to understand as God's people. Some of us are having young people that go off to college. What kind of church will they find? Will they find a church that looks like Pacific Hope? Will they find a church that looks like what God ordained his church to look like? You see, we'll look at biblical eldership, and we'll understand that a a biblical elder is not somebody who makes decisions about when the parking lot gets restriped. We're not looking for a way in which we we vote for an elder to take care of certain functions. We'll be looking at what Christ ordained for those who would be the pastors of his church. So with that as a a bit of a preamble, let's read God's word together. I'm going to um, invite you to stand out of um, reverence for God's word. We'll read through the whole chapter if you're able. Stand if you're not. We'll look together at the first chapter of Paul's letter to Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife 
and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Father God, we ask that this morning you would quiet our hearts that you would prepare our minds to hear from your word, that we would be strengthened and edified and exhorted through the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to read just a brief excerpt from a, a booklet by a man by Alexander Strzok. Alexander Strzok dedicated his uh, life to an academic and a pragmatic explanation of what biblical eldership and what biblical deacons are all about. He says something very important for us to understand as we delve into the biblical qualifications of an elder this morning, and that is, what is this elder title all about? Strzok says, It is highly noteworthy that the New Testament provides more instruction concerning the qualifications for eldership than any other topic on eldership. Such qualifications are not required of all teachers or evangelists. One person may be gifted as an evangelist and be used of God in that capacity, yet be unqualified to be an elder. When we speak of elders' qualifications, most people think that these qualifications are different than that of the clergy or of a pastor. The New Testament, however, has no separate standards for a pastor or a lay elder. The reason is simple. There aren't three separate offices, pastors, elders, and deacons. In the New Testament-style local church, there are only two offices, elders and deacons. From the New Testament perspective, any man in the congregation who desires to shepherd the Lord's people and meets godly requirements for the office can be a pastor-elder. The spiritual qualifications can be divided into three broad categories. Moral and spiritual character, abilities, and spirit-given motivation. So again, those three broad categories that we see for elder qualifications are moral and spiritual character, abilities, and spirit-led motivation. And this morning, because we're in Titus 1, we're not trying to do a, a whole exhaustive study on biblical eldership this morning. We're only trying to understand what God gives us in Titus chapter 1. We'll be focusing primarily on the spiritual and moral qualifications for those who are called to be elders in Christ's church. We'll be picking up today at verse 5, just to recap where we left off. Last week we see, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. See, Paul is leaving Titus there to begin this process of setting up churches. And it wasn't like he started franchising out the local church and people could sign up to run their own local chapter. This is a biblical mandate that began with the Great Commission. 
Christ himself says, go into all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so Titus is carrying out that work. That was the work that he had as plan A. It wasn't that things weren't working out well for Titus, and so Paul has to change the plan and send him a different formula. In fact, we see in Acts 14.23 that there's a, a model by which these elders are appointed. It says they're appointed through prayer and through fasting. There's an intentional discerning of the Holy Spirit in terms of who Paul was going to leave in charge of the churches and who Titus would subsequently appoint as elders. There's not a, an outline for an election process or an ad in the local paper, pastor wanted, right? What we have here is a formula by which men would be prayed over, there'd be fasting, and they'd be appointed as leaders. So this isn't a second plan for Titus. But the letter, again, is to deputize Titus, to make it clear to everyone else what is the biblical model for the church so that they could carry it out. I'm going to read for you verses 6 through 9 yet again because this is the focus of what we see in terms of the spiritual and moral qualifications for an elder. Now, this is not just a, a list of things that need to be checked off to make sure someone's qualified. These are, in fact, a litmus to see if grace has produced godliness. Remember that from last week. We'll see this over and over again. The Having been recipients of God's grace, which has appeared to us through the person of Jesus Christ, it produces in us a response, fruit. Paul calls that elsewhere in one of his famous lists, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Well, this list of qualifications are things that ought to be there in those who are called and appointed to be elders because they have rightly understood and lived from a position of the grace of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read this again, and then we're going to take a quick time out to re-get our, our bearings on this whole concept of, of biblical eldership. Paul says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Just a quick note, there's a word in there, steward. And this word steward is somebody who is a an overseer. In fact, the word steward and overseer and elder are all interchangeable. Again, I throw Spanish out there because I haven't learned my Greek yet, but uh, the word for, for an overseer in Spanish is obispo. So if you've heard of San Luis Obispo, that word is overseer or elder. That's somebody who's in charge of the, the affairs of the house. And this is very important because the terminologies that Paul is using to describe a faithful elder is someone who manages their own home and family well. We see that in God's perfect plan for his interaction with human beings, he gives us the example of human relationships to allow us to understand what his church ought to look like. God is father, we are his children. Christ is the bridegroom, we are the bride. Christ is our master, and we are the bondservant or the steward. That relationship is always there. And for that very reason, those human relationships are used as a litmus for how we would then administer the house of God, the church. I'm going to ask Kathy to put a slide up for us this morning. 
and this slide is one of very few PowerPoint slides that we'll have this morning. For those of you following along, it's worth using the real estate in your bulletin to write this out. The resource that I'm going to share with you is from Nine Marks, and since it's Nine Marks, you'd expect that there'd be six, right? Six. So these are our qualifications overall of what an, an elder ought to be. And we'll see a lot of these in Titus chapter 1. Some of them we'll see next week in Titus chapter 2. But we will always use scripture to interpret scripture. And so there's some other passages that we ought to see as well. Qualifications for one who would be an elder. They want to be an elder. This is something that is, is desired to carry out this responsibility of, of eldership. Again, it's not decisions on restriping parking lots. It's being with members of the body in their moment of deepest hurt. It's providing biblical counsel when life is as wrought with the consequences of sin as, as possible. It's providing sound teaching. Scripture says that the elder ought to aspire to that. If we go to 1 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And it goes on to describe that overseer. We'll come back to that same text in 1 Timothy again. We'll also see that the apostolic model for biblical eldership is taught not only by Paul, but also by Brother Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. I'll start at verse 1. It says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." See, it describes their motivation, right? It describes them not being under compulsion. This is not a task that Titus assigned to an elder. This is a task that men ordained by God willingly accepted the challenge that Titus, with the words of Paul and the words of Jesus Christ, would accept. The second thing, according to this list from a great little booklet by Nine Marks, is they exemplify godly leadership. And that's where we'll spend the most of our, our time this morning. Titus chapter 1, it's full of those, those qualifications. The third thing is that an elder has the function of teaching Scripture and refuting errant doctrine. The refuting errant doctrine, the, the apologetics, the being able to, as we see in Titus chapter 1, silence those to rebuke them sharply. We see a, a charge for the elder to be bold in not only teaching the word, but also using the word to silence any who may contradict it, to protect the church from heresy. The fourth thing we'll see as this, we look at this list of, of things to prepare us to understand Titus chapter 1 is that an elder is to, to lead his family well. Again, we see, and, and you know these passages well, but we see that Paul says similar things in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. We won't look at it now, but we see a mandate for how a husband is to treat his wife, how a wife responds to her husband, and we see this pattern for godly living in the church. We also see that they can manage their, their family well. 1 Timothy chapter 3, going back to this text, it says, 
An elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Strong words indeed. But how you steward one thing very much is how you're going to steward God's most precious thing. The fifth qualification, some of you may have to resist the urge to get up and walk out the door. Sadly, we've had some who have. Biblical eldership is to be that of male. Men. Men leading. First Timothy chapter 2 talks about how a woman is not to exercise teaching authority over a male. Many women are gifted to teach other women. Many women are gifted to impart God's word to young people. But women are not to teach over men. This is a, a subject that is so countercultural and so conflictive, but it's in Scripture. And for that reason, we adhere to that. And for, for any who might be in our statistically high list of people looking to relocate to other areas, <laughs> keep that in mind. There's lots of churches out there, and they'll, they'll talk to you about their, their, their female pastors and their, how they've embraced what's going on in our culture. If the church isn't structured on the Bible, how can we expect them to teach it? Finally, number six, is there an established believer? Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be like in your golden years to be an elder of the church, right? Paul says to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But what he does say is no one who's new in the faith, if we look at verse six of 1 Timothy chapter three, it says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Church, right now we are going through experiences that are trials, that are sanctifying us, and that are proving our faith. If we've not lived enough life to go through those sanctifying experiences, what happens when the tough time comes? Fall apart. And for that reason, Paul says, no new believers. The Spanish word for that one sounds like rookie. No rookies. No rookies. So with these six principles in mind, keep in mind that we're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at that of godly character. I do want to make one more comment out of, uh, with regards to, to number five. You are, you are a male leader, an elder. And this one's really important because it ties into some of the, the evangelistic call of our church. Some of you know that I had the opportunity to... to be a, a, a part of a pastoral team and, and helping serve the Lord in Honduras. And one of the first things that was assigned to me as a task when I got there is to train up elders. And I wrote to my buddy, Anthony Melicharic, some of you know him, and I told him, hey, we really want to buy this material from Alexander Strzok on how to do biblical eldership. It's available in Spanish. It's an amazing material. And months later, we get this beautiful box of materials. And... Uh, we were so excited that we didn't have to make photocopies. We had enough copies for everybody. And then we went to start eldership training. We had a lot of copies left over. You want to know why? There was churches with zero men. Literally, no men. Like, how are you supposed to train up elders when there's no men? We have an entire community of single moms and kids that are being raised without fathers because their fathers have left to come to the United States illegally or they've, been, they've disqualified themselves biblically or they have no relationship with Christ. What do you do in those situations? Strzok himself says, it's better to have no elders than bad ones. And so it's in circumstances like that where we had a chance to see God move men from one place in their own country 
to yet another. That's the missionary call. That's the, if there's a, a congregation of people and there's a, there's a group coming together that are hungry for seeking after Christ, then God will send someone because it's his church. He'll move, a, move someone from one place to another to fill that void. That said, let's return to our, our primary text back in Titus. As always, we, we get to flip around, right? And it's great to hear pages again. Paul gets into a list, and he, he talks about these qualifications first of how they manage their own homes, how elders manage their own homes. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. See, these texts require careful interpretation as well. There's a lot of debate in terms of what does it mean when it says a husband of one wife, right? There's, there's some who have said, well, that means that an elder can't have been d- divorced before. There are others that said that maybe Paul was trying to deal with the topic of, of polygamy in, Titus, in, in Crete, but what we do is we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And we can see that in Hebrews chapter 13, there's a clear description of what it means for a man to be a one-woman man. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. In that same text, he's talking about church leadership. What he's looking for is is men who are faithful to their wives. Why? Because again, that faithfulness is what Christ requires of his church. If you look through the Old Testament, you have the prophet Hosea. Hosea was told to marry a harlot, an unfaithful woman. Why? So that God could communicate to his people his desire to have a people who were faithful to him. So to lead a people to be faithful to Christ, man's got to be faithful to his bride. The next thing he, he talks about is he talks about his leading uh, children who are believers. This is also a, a really tough one for, for us who have recognized God's sovereign hand in the process of election. We know that we don't direct anyone to salvation. We raise our children with a, with a fear of the Lord and a knowledge of the gospel so that they might respond to his invitation to salvation. But the role that we play in their salvation has a limit because it's Christ's effectual calling that brings them to salvation. So, so what does that mean? Their children have to be believers? What happens then? It's commonly understood that, first of all, it, it means that it's for children who are under our roofs. In 1 Timothy, again, chapter 3, verse 3, verse 4, it says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Right? It's different wording, the same vein, right? It's, this is the pastoral letter that he writes right before Titus, and he's talking about the children being submissive, not having placed necessarily a saving faith in Jesus Christ, but being submissive to their parents in a way that shows an orderly home. The effectual calling of salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit alone. So that, that needs to be understood as we look at the, the qualifications of biblical eldership. Then from there we begin to see a list of, of what look like do's and don'ts. Now, as people, 
we do such a bad job of, of responding to lists of things. First of all, our natural tendency when we see a list of anything is to either skip over it or to, to, to fixate on it to make sure we get them all, right? Spirit of honesty, I don't get sent to the grocery store very often, but when I do, I want to make sure I get every item on the list. You bring something home incomplete, the recipe doesn't work out well. Everything in this list is important. But I want, to, I want to call to your attention the fact that these items in the list, there are six things that are negative and five that are positive. And Paul does this so that there's some kind of comparison between the two. Let's look for example. It says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there's kind of a, there's a comparison here. Strzok, again, citing my source, Strzok says that arrogance sets itself up almost with hospitality. Now, how interesting is that? The, the notion of arrogance is self-centered, interested in myself, and hospitality says, everything I've got is open up to you. And for that reason, we're actually going to look at five words specifically this morning. We don't have time to delve into all of them, but we're going to look at hospitable. We're going to look at self-controlled, godly, upright, and a sneak preview at next week, teaching sound doctrine. The first one, hospitable, is, is amazing to me because it seems odd that it would make the list. Right? Why, why is it important? Well, if the home is where we see how things are well-managed and how things are run, then we ought to not be compartmentalized and have our homes open. Now, granted, the context of this message is biblical eldership, but everything that's in here is so that the elder imitates Christ and that the body likewise imitates Christ. So is hospitality just reserved for elders? <laughs> no. But you know who it is for? Everybody in the church. This notion of, of not being focused on ourselves, but being open. A brother in the church commented to me, you know, I don't see a lot of dinner invites going on at our church. And he probably hasn't met the right people yet. But the art of hospitality is a, is a hard one for us in Southern California sometimes. It is. We're, we're very private. How many of us have next door neighbors and we don't know their names? I bet a lot of us. How many of us think, you know, if my house wasn't 800 square feet, it'd be a lot easier to have people over. <laughs> but you know what? I've seen some of the warmest hospitality in the world. A lot of people who have a dirt floor and will walk for a mile to bring you back near-boiling temperature Coca-Cola and will give you their only chair while they entertain you. We, got, we, we, have, we must exercise hospitality. It is part of how people see Christ lived in our lives. The brief interactions we have before and after church are insufficient, and that's why hospitality is our faith lived out. I have to admit, the, the second item that we'll look at in this list is a, a little hard these days. And the second one is self-controlled. And uh, for those of you who are preparing your memory verse for just a little bit later on this morning, you'll notice that this was in the, the passage from the second chapter as well. We see this notion repeated throughout Paul's epistles, throughout Titus. Self-controlled. What does that mean? 
one definition I found is that you control emotions or desires. Controlling drives that lead to impulsive or damaging behavior. If you want to use a little psychology, which I don't recommend, it says that self-control is monitoring things in your life, setting standards for them, and then having the strength to not act on them. Now, self-control for each of us will take on a little different shape. It might be, how much dessert do we have? How long do we sleep? How long do we put off the work that we ought to be doing? How much do we drink? How much do we spend? How much do we look at our phones? What does self-control look like? I can tell you what it does look like. It looks like having the Holy Spirit indwelling us and that our standards are scriptural ones. Controlling drives that lead to impulsive or damaging behavior. The call to be self-controlled. Then we see the word upright. The notion of upright is being righteous. Adhering to biblical standards for what is right and wrong. That's a, that's a rarity to see, but in order to be a, an elder, to be a leader in Christ's church, that must be present. And that must be present because every single believer in Jesus Christ must demonstrate upright. That's our call. Then we have holy. And holy is used interchangeably with, with godly. But primarily it means set apart. It means unstained. Paul uses this term in a number of different ways in Titus chapter 1. He says, Above reproach. Other translations would say blameless. It's that they're so set apart that there's a distinction between them and the culture around you. Holy. And then the, the other attribute that we see here that's so incredibly important is not just a characteristic, but it's also a function. What is it that an elder in Christ's church ought to do? And that is holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, is the, is the elder the only one who can spot and call out heresy? No. I was in an airport recently, and they've got that slogan. If you see something, say something, right? Everybody here has access to Scripture. <laughs> test the things that we hear in light of Scripture. Listening to a podcast, test it in light of Scripture. Reading the, the news and the propaganda of the day, test it against Scripture. It's a resource for every believer, but it ought to be demonstrated first and foremost by those who Christ has appointed as leaders. Now, verse 10, we're going to make a little bit of a, a transition. We're going, to, we're going to look away for just a moment of those biblical, spiritual qualifications of an elder, and we're going to look at why they're needed and a bit of a compare and a contrast. Let's look at it together. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now again, interpreting scripture to, to help us understand what's going on, we don't have the exact details of the conflict, but what we do know is that Paul writes to the Galatian church about the Judaizers. We saw last week that Titus himself was not forced to be circumcised, although there were apparently some who had desire to do that, Titus being an uncircumcised Greek. 
there's this notion that these uh, Jewish believers who had been dispersed out away from Jerusalem, had been dispersed out away from Rome, are in Crete. And they're wanting to, to peddle this fusion of, of gospel with that which was untrue. Keeping to Jewish customs. Tying the message of the gospel to a list of do's and don'ts from Mosaic law. And look what they're doing. They were upsetting whole families. The church comprised of many households. They're, they're causing a disturbance. So what is Titus supposed to do? Silence them. Rebuke them with the word of God. That's part of the function of, of these elders. Verse 12 is um, a really interesting statement. Paul says, as he's looking at the, the culture and the context of Crete, and he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This statement is true. What a... What a overwhelmingly scathing statement. But with a statement like that, there is, in our day, the recognition that there are statements that can be made about our culture. They may not be specifically true to, about us, but we can certainly agree that they're prevalent. A couple of examples for the sports fans. Raiders fans are always belligerent. People from Santee always drive lifted trucks. <laughs> Those things might not be true about you, but looking around, there's anecdotal evidence. <laughs> there's no elders being singled out in this conversation, by the way. Um, the, the idea that Paul is saying here is these stereotypes about the culture are, are true, but they ought not be true in the church. They ought not be true in the church. Now, it's really, really important for us to see the order in which Paul carves this out. First of all, he talks about the attributes where we're supposed to be like Christ, and then he makes a comment about the culture. And this one's convicting to me because I see a lot of myself and other believers that are, are wanting to be set apart for the mere sake of being countercultural, for the mere sake of, of being perhaps a little bit argumentative. But we're not called simply to be countercultural. We're called to be like Christ. All of these qualifications here are about being like Christ. Hospitable. A lover of good. Self-controlled. Upright. Holy. And disciplined. Do we give up some of our self-control? Do we give up some of our upright? Do we give up some of our, our holy just for the sake of combating the culture in which we live? If, if that's the case, the call's right there. Be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So Paul goes on and he says that this testimony, this stereotype about the culture, it's true. Therefore, get it out of the church. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Now notice that this controversy here is, is different than we see elsewhere in Scripture where it's like, just get them out of the church. Here, it's a restorative statement. It's rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Correct that errant doctrine. Now, he doesn't say do it gingerly, do it in a way that doesn't hurt their feelings. He says sharply. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. This is part of the mandate of, a, of an elder of the church of Christ Jesus. 
He then says in verse 15, he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. See, this goes back to the, the argument of the day, these, these Judaizers that had a list of everything that was clean and everything that was unclean. And what he's saying is, if we've understood properly what grace has done for us, there's a, there's a freedom that comes in that. To the pure, all things are pure. To those who have received grace, there's going to be a natural extension of grace to those around us. If you don't see that natural extension of grace to those around you, have you understood it? Grace produces godliness. Verse 16 makes it really clear how to, how to call those out that would be, in Titus' time, showing some sort of interest in, in speaking to the church, some, some who would have some sort of desire to infiltrate the church. And he says, you know what? They profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Harsh words. Harsh words. And, and what Paul is saying, it's, there's, if there's no evidence of godliness, then where's the grace? They deny him by their works. This ought to produce godliness. So in, in looking at this particular list of descriptions, what we're, we're going to see is that all of that feeds into chapter 2, which is teaching sound doctrine and rebuking. We'll have the opportunity to look through verses that, that make it crystal clear what the function of teaching sound doctrine is and how a church ought to be characterized by this sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? I think we memorized some of it this week, right? I think we memorized some of it this week. In fact, before we conclude, I would like to give us the opportunity to, to recite that together, but that message of sound doctrine is so concise. It's so simple. Paul calls it out and lays it out in such a way that it's overwhelming in the joy that it should bring to us as believers. It is grace having appeared. I want to look at Hebrews chapter 13. We looked at one of the verses here, but I want to look at it in greater detail because it helps us understand what biblical eldership ought to produce in the church and in the lives of the believers who are ministered to by the preaching of the gospel in the church. So Paul says, Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Look at Hebrews 13 as a good summary of those six things that we see. The author of Hebrews says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And look at verses 7 and 8. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you by the word of God. 
Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I love what that says. Consider the outcome of their faith, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. That's what this model of biblical churches are all about. Setting believers in a place where they can receive sound doctrine. They can see sound doctrine lived out. They can see grace, and as it produces, godliness. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. At this point, I'm going to invite everybody to close your Bibles. Can't have them open. And for those who have um, been meditating on this verse this week, I'd like to see how well we can do saying it together. And you can use your bulletin if you have to. But next week, but next week, and I want to close with this. I know that we're, we're skipping into chapter two, but it is so much of what is sound doctrine. We talk about it. We're supposed to defend it. We're supposed to refute anything that contradicts to it. So what is it? So that's what we write on our hearts. Let's see, what we, let's see how we do. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. That's it. And, and I, I'm so excited to share with this with you that you'll have to hear it again next week, okay? But we look at this glorious gospel, this sound doctrine, and we see twice in this passage an appearing. The word we introduced last week was epiphany. Christ appeared. And you know what we see in sound doctrine right here? We see that he already appeared. And what did he bring when he appeared? Salvation for all people, Jews and Gentiles. That's what he brought. But you know what's even more glorious about this? The sound doctrine tells us that we're waiting for his second epiphany. And what's he going to bring then? Blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for, the already and the not yet. So, so take joy because this is what our church is built on. This is what our faith is built on. Anything else, rebuke it, dismiss it. This is sound doctrine. The salvation has appeared and our, our King and our God and our Savior will appear again. Let's pray. We'll keep working at a verse for next week because we're going to come back to that and, and dig in even more. But be reminded that our shepherd is Christ Jesus. And his sheep know his voice. Listen to his voice. Father in heaven, we come before you recognizing that you are a great shepherd, that you have purchased us. You have bought us out of lawlessness and, and sin. You have given us your indwelling Holy Spirit to teach us, to, 
to control ourselves and to live in a way that honors you before the eyes of, of an unbelieving world. We pray, Father God, that this week we would be drawn into a life of even deeper prayer. God, we thank you for the current trial and tribulation that we face because it reminds us of what's always been true, and that is we desperately need you. May we be reminded that you are sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. May we also look forward to that blessed hope that we have, that our faith will be made sight, that our sins will be far from us, that we will be in the presence of you, our great and holy God. God, I pray for each of us this week that we will immerse ourselves in your word, that we will care for one another with, with hospitality and with grace that is foreign to the culture in which we live. May we reach out to each other in ways that, that exemplify Christ. May we imitate Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.